have a focus. I have a passion. This is it. I'm working 100% on type 1 diabetes, 100% using everything I've learned at my team, Stanford, nanotechnology and engineering to save our life. So I didn't choose to be an entrepreneur, but I, I have to be because I, I have to save our life. Welcome to the Charting Her Course podcast, brought to you by the Pacific Coast Business Times. This podcast will give an inside look at women who own and run small businesses on California's Central Coast. I'm your host, Veronica Kuzma, and I'm so excited to put a spotlight on these fascinating businesses in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and Ventura counties. This podcast would not be possible without our sponsor, Bank of America. More from them a little later. Sumita Penether is the founder and CEO of Laxmi Therapeutics and a mechanical engineering professor at UC Santa Barbara. Sumita has two degrees in aerospace engineering from MIT and a mechanical engineering PhD from Stanford. Some of her accomplishments include creating an improved breast pumping device, as well as developing groundbreaking research for type 1 diabetes. Listen as she talks about finding confidence with her identity, her experiences as a woman in science and engineering, and finding motivation for motherhood. Please enjoy this talk with Sumita Penether. Hello, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thank you for taking the time. No problem. I'm excited to be here too. I saw you speak at a Women in Entrepreneurship event about a month ago, and it was so inspiring. And seriously, I was sitting there on the edge of my seat. Just everything you said really resonated with me. So I'm really excited for people to hear you and your insights today. So thank you. Thank you. You're making my eyes water. <laughs> no, already, no. Already. <laughs> it's okay. We allow crying in here <laughs> if you feel like you need to. So can you tell us how and when did you know that you wanted to be an, on an engineer? I'm glad you said engineer, not entrepreneur. Yeah, <laughs> I almost started that. I said I did. <laughs> What's really funny is I grew up in um, Foxborough, Massachusetts. It's where the Patriots play, and they lost every game until I moved away. I remember telling my dad that I didn't want to be an engineer when I grew up because I didn't want to get my hands dirty. <gasps> I remember clearly saying that to him because I thought engineers were like, get got dirty, and I didn't want to get dirty. But at the same time, I remember wanting to know how my door handles worked and wanted to know how everything worked. And only after I came, went to college did I see, hey, engineering really excites me. It interests me. It's what I want to do. I want to figure out how things work and then, you know, make things. And so it wasn't until college. And uh, uh, one thing I think is very important that people understand, a any time in life you can choose what you want to do. In fact, I'm already going to answer, preemptively answer a question. One of my biggest role models is my grand aunt. She came to the US, I don't know how old, I think she was in her 50s. She had an arranged marriage in India and realized, she had to, I think she had to leave undergrad early. She never gra you know, graduated from college because it was an arranged marriage. She had to get married, have kids, yada, yada, yada. But she was really insistent on wanting to work. She wanted to work, she wanted to make a name for herself. And she worked, and that's like so unheard of in India and in the whenever. Don't make me think about years. Uh, <laughs> but she moved uh, to the U.S. because she wanted to get her undergrad degree. She went to University of Connecticut, and then she went to UCLA for a Ph.D. And in University of Connecticut, she was uh, the dorm master because she was so much older. She was in her 50s, I'm sure. And um, she became a professor 
Uh, she got her PhD at UCLA and then became a professor. And I remember visiting her in her 60s and she was a professor. She just became a professor. It was so inspiring to me that she decided this is what I want to do in her 40s or 50s and then still did everything. And she wrote a couple books on dual career families and things that are incredibly relevant to women you know, in society these days. And it was you know 30 years ago. And she was so inspiring to me. That it made, and one of the major lessons I learned from her is you can be any age when you decide what to do. You know, don't worry about it. Everyone goes down the paths. Any age you are, as soon as you figure out what excites you, do it. And don't ever think back about you're too young or this or that. That means nothing. That's so great. I love that. It's true because you always think you have to do stuff by a certain age. And if you don't, you're a failure or you're not where Never. you want to be in life. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think what I was saying in that um, talk is, one of the other things I like to teach people, and I learned it later, is you define your own success. Right? I remember being upset when I was tw 28 years old, like, oh, I'm not as good as this guy doing this and this and this. You always compare yourself to people. And somebody came over and took me aside and said, no, no, you should never. I know it's very, very hard. It's absolutely impossible to try to do in real life. But you should never compare yourself to anyone else because you are your own story. You know, you have your own story. Nobody else has, as I said, I think in the talk, I am literally the best and the most amazing Indian female sax player who's a professor of mechanical engineering in Santa Barbara. There's absolutely <laughs> no one who yes. can do that, right? Period. So that's a good, that's actually a really good segue now. Can you talk about your career path leading up to now? I know you've had a lot of different avenues, so. I grew up in Foxborough, Massachusetts, which was 99%, 99.99% probably white, right? And so I am not white. I am brownish colored, right? And, um, so growing up was very difficult socially for me. In high school, I uh, had zero. I had one or two friends, maybe max, but I never hung out with them because they had to hang out with their other friends. And at lunch, there was the, the you know, four hundred pound person and the person with the weird, you know, like I was one of the weirdos that sat in the corner. Um, and then I started playing sax and just you know going to the band room and playing sax every time for lunch. It, it sort of made me who I am in terms of a sax, a sax player and having an outlet today. But I remember being bullied. I remember having a house toilet paper. And I remember all of that. You know, it was racism as it worst back then. So I grew up like that. And then when I went to college, I went to MIT, which is so eclectic. And that was just so great to find people from all walks of life. I was able to thrive in that at MIT. I decided to do aerospace and aeronautical engineering, not necessarily because I loved airplanes, but because I loved engineering. And that was the major that had the smallest amount of people. So I felt like I could have as much, you know, individual time with professors. And in fact, this is a cute story. <laughs> I, um, the thermodynamics professor I had a little crush on, I still do. He's now, I think, provost at MIT. But one of his graduate students was my now husband. So that's <gasps> oh, how wow. We met. That's amazing. And, yeah. So I got really lucky. Pretty cool. There. Got really lucky. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to stay at MIT. I loved learning. Absolutely loved learning. Absolutely you know, knew I wanted to be a professor just because I loved learning. I loved teaching. I was a TA. And I knew I wanted to be a professor then. So I figured you know, you get a master's and a PhD. I wanted to do something that was very fundamental so I could use it to, to grow. I stayed at MIT, but my, my now husband, my boyfriend at the time, went to Chicago. I was so in love that I wanted, you know, I wanted to be closer to him. So I left with a master's from MIT and went to Chicago to be a management consultant for a year. And I hated every second of it. Within three weeks of, of joining there, I realized I had to go back to grad school. So I applied to a bunch of grad schools, and my husband said, no, if you stay in Chicago, I'll dump you. He didn't mean that. Yeah. But he said that because he wanted me to go where I should go. And 
And my grandparents, I'm very close to my family. My grandparents were in, in California near Stanford. So I figured, oh, I can go to Stanford and I'd be able to see them a lot in their last days. So I went to Stanford and then I achieved my name goal, S-U-M-I-T-A, Stanford University, M-I-T. Oh, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about crazy? like, you know, like, the you know, whatever, yeah. happenstance or whatever. <laughs> and my first faculty offer was UPenn. My last name is Penether. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So I went to Stanford. We were long distance for a few years. So for all you guys that are long distance, it works. It's great. Success. We have a success story. (laughs) Then I had a crazy three weeks where I defended my thesis. I ran away to Vegas and got married to my husband. And I produced my first CD with my band all in three weeks. Wow. And then even crazier, we got very lucky in Vegas because nine months later, my son was born. Wow. (laughs) So uh, another thing, I guess, to, to reflect on life events is at 26 years old, I never thought I should have a kid, you know, like, but we were getting married in Vegas happens in Vegas was supposed to say in Vegas, but, it didn't. <laughs> um, but you know you you deal with the punches right like right. I, and in fact going back I would never take anything back because he's amazing and so I went to Sandia National Labs to do a postdoc and I remember I was talking you know when you walk in they have an internal interview right look at you just like okay they're going down the list of questions and like do you have this do you have this are you pregnant like uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, gotta tell them, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I went, Sandia National Labs was fun. I knew I wanted to be a professor. I was already interviewing for professor jobs. Sandia didn't know that. And I was pregnant at the time when I was interviewing, which was difficult to say the least. And um, the level two manager, like my, my boss's boss, was I, I was trying to get some internal money to do my own thing because I wanted to try doing my own thing as practice for faculty. And that's, you know, that's why I'm trying. And, and I heard... And who knows if this is true or not, but I heard a a rumor that the level two manager was like, oh, well, she's going to have a baby. I mean, of course she's going to stay at Sandia. Why would she leave? She couldn't leave after having a baby. And so guess what? Three months after having the baby, I had took three months paternity leave as soon as I had the baby because Sandia allowed me. And then I walked in the next day and quit and moved to Twente in Europe to be a, another postdoc before I started faculty. So, you know. Yeah, they can't. I can yeah. do it. I can do it. Exactly. Know? Yeah. So I went to Europe for a year with my my husband. My husband was a stay-at-home dad. He's amazing for doing that, right? Like quitting everything after a 20-year career just to let me do what I want to do. That's so, yeah, you don't hear that a lot. So that's that's great. Yeah. And after that postdoc, I started at Cindy. My son was nine months old. I mean, started at Cindy. I started at UCSB. Uh, my son was nine months old. And I was one of the first female, I think, I think I can say I'm the first female in the College of Engineering to have kids pre-tenure. And so that was a really interesting experience. And it's funny because being a woman in science and engineering, you know, people ask how you experience. And honestly, before I had kids, I felt like the women a decade before me did all the work. They tried hard. They pushed hard. I felt nothing. Like, it was awesome. I, I did my thing. Yeah, a little bit here and there, but nothing more than normal women feel. But as soon as I became a professor, as soon as I had a child, life was different. Right, I remember professors coming to me. I remember there was, when I had my second child, there were four professors, that male professors, who were also having children. And all of them, I think all of them, had stay-at-home wives, right? So not working um, wives. And they were all tenured, okay? And I was not tenured, and I had my second child, right, with a husband that was working full-time. And I remember going to a meeting and some guy walking in late saying, oh, sorry, I got a, I got a few month old at home. Like, I had to deal with him. I'm like... I have someone stuck to my breast for nine hours a day. 
and you think you can come in late when I'm here? Like, you know, you think you can use that as an excuse? And you, you know what I mean? It's like crazy. And I'm untenured. And, and it was funny because the four men all got like time off from teaching. And I didn't even think I could get anything. Oh, wow. And I'm untenured with the child mm-hmm. as the mother with a, you know, kid that has a sticker on your best friend. Hours. It's crazy how a lot of men got things that I would have wanted. And the reason they did is because they asked and I didn't ask. So another thing, ask ask because people are getting things that are ridiculously unfair and they what why why didn't I get that oh because you didn't ask it seems so simple but I know it can be really hard to like even think that you can ask but I'm glad you said that it's it's your life so you really do have to take that initiative I guess yeah and now a word from our sponsor Bank of America asked Central Coast businesses what would you like the power to do Listening to your answer is how we learn about what matters most and help you achieve your goals. That's why we've lent over a half billion dollars to Ventura, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo County's small, mid-size, and commercial businesses. Because we don't just work here, we live here. So anyways, in Europe, I was nursing my child, as you all know, a baby child, and I didn't like the breast pumps that were out there because the bathrooms in Europe were gross. So going in there with this big breast pump, it smelled gross. I didn't want to pump milk there. So I sort of devised my own breast pump. And I called Avent and Medela and all these places, and they immediately called me back. And and that's how I first started getting like, oh, I can actually build stuff that's going to help people. I can actually build stuff to help people. And that's where it sort of started, but I was still a postdoc. When I became a professor, we realized that when I was pregnant, I forget whether it was child two or three, but one of the children, <laughs> when I was talking to Dr. Alex Sofaji, who's a perinatologist in town, so people in town knows who I'm talking about, he was doing my ultrasound, and we started nerding out because he's, he's a little engineer at heart, I think. And we were talking about all the different things we can do, and he was telling me about this Klein-Hauer-Becky test. So I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's a KB test. So you're your placenta when you're pregnant is one cell layer thick. So, you know, fetal blood can go into the mother's blood. Back in the day, they used to use amniocentesis to check genetic deformalities of kids. They had to, like, stick into your, you know, placenta. But now they just take blood from you because they can take the fetal cells from the blood and actually analyze stuff. But if you have too many holes in your placenta, like too many holes in that stack, too much blood will leak out, right? Which means that if you don't, if the baby doesn't have enough blood, they're going to get cerebral palsy, melted rotation. Their brain's not going to develop as well, um, and that's called fetal maternal hemorrhaging. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the test to test for fetal maternal hemorrhaging is a Kate Klein-Harbecki test. They, you know, take blood from the mother and they look. At, they put it on a slide, and then I don't know if you know this, but um, fetal cells have nuclei and maternal cells don't. So there's a simple like color assay you can do to try to you know make the fetal cells different than the mother cells. So you have it on the side, and somebody sits in a microscope and literally counts one by one by one how many cells are fetal and maternal out of 10,000, let's say. Then they have to get another person to count because they can't trust the first person because counting time. That's a lot of time and that money. That is. And so my husband and I are like, we could just make a little microfluidic chip that captures the cells and does image processing. Come on. <laughs> So we started a company, Astafluidics, for that. And that, again, that that's how that entrepreneurship works. And yeah, I, I didn't ever want to be an entrepreneur. It's just like when you feel that you can make a difference, you have to make a difference. You have no choice, right? Like you, I didn't study my ass off at MIT and Stanford. I didn't work the hardest I possibly could to not change the lives of people. So of course I want to try to be translative, right? But at the same time, I love teaching. Like I love teaching. I love 
the favorite time of my life is that light bulb that goes off. Like, that's why I want to, you know, I love going to the eighth graders and inspiring them like that. But light bulb where it's just like, oh, you can put these two together. I'm like, oh, I get it. That's so cool to see that. It's, it's, it's them, not me, but me being able to, you know, help influence the development of people. I, I love teaching. So I, I like entrepreneurship, too, because I'm helping. But at the same time, it's all about hiring the right people to do the job, right? For the companies that I have, I have the best people doing doing it, so I don't have to do much. And then the teaching, I actually directly influence people, so it's nicer. But anyways, then something terrible happened. I had a, a third child that died at 23 weeks or, or something oh, young, no. so you know I was able to hold the baby in my hands, and then we had to have a funeral for it. And that was really hard. And, and you know these things happen to everybody. And again, another thing to know is that Everyone has their everyone has stories that really affect them, and you again are the hero of your own story. You define your success. There's no other man out there that had a third child die on them, right? right, <laughs> right? <yes. laughs> While they're giving birth, because they didn't give birth, because right. um, so you know that really depressed me for a while. And I remember during that time, an alumni, uh, Ron Chiarello, came to um, check out the labs, dog and pony shows. You know, they're trying to impress him and. They were asking me, hey, can you show them around your lab? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But something inspired me to go do it that day. And I did, and we fell in, like, geek love, right? Because he was such a, you know, he got his Ph.D., I think, at UC, or he went to UCSB, and and he um, solved a problem that was real, like a chelator, something that was causing bad chemicals to go into the water of somewhere in Illinois or Cincinnati. He actually figured out the chemicals to so stop that and to actually save the water for, for the people and the dirt. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. And then he started a few companies and sold them all. So he's a serial entrepreneur. And he saw my research. He's like, you can use this research to actually do, you know, point-of-care diagnostics. So some of the nanofluidic stuff I was doing, the nanotechnology, could actually be used for point-of-care diagnostics, for taking your blood at the doctor's putting it in a little device and saying, oh, you have this disease. So like the Ranos, right, the, the, the company that went, but a, a real technology. So he went ahead and, and we co-founded the company, and it's doing really well right now. It's in the Bay Area, it's in Alameda. Um, wow. You know, it has 40 people, and, and I'm not doing much except being helping scientifically, but, you know, Ron, Ron had, I, I was really smart with hiring Ron to be able to take that and, and run with it. And in fact, um, you know, I remember four years ago they were saying, hey, you want to have a more active role? You want to come in? You know, what can you do? And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, I, I wish I could do something at UCSB that had, you know, a profound impact in a, in a disease that this this technology I built for Alveo could be applied to a lot of diseases. I was thinking, hey, I should focus on one. And of course, right around then is when my daughter got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So... Now, since she got diagnosed in 2016, everything I do has been focused on saving her life and helping her manage her diabetes. And so I've been, it's been awesome because I have, I have a focus. I have a passion. This is it. I'm working 100% on type 1 diabetes, 100% using everything I've learned on my team, Stanford, nanotechnology and engineering to save her life. So I didn't choose to be an entrepreneur, but I, I have to be because I, I have to save her life. So that's interesting because, you know, a lot of times people on their entrepreneurship journey, they're really focused on one thing and they just want to, you know, make a product and sell it and make the big money or whatever. So you have a totally different motivation. You know, you're just making these things for yourself and your family, Correct. which could never, I mean, that's the best motivator out there, I would think. So do you think the financial aspect of that is different for you? Because, you know, I imagine you're making these things because you're going to use them or your family is. So is... 
putting a number on these things, was that difficult to do? Yes. Yeah, so that's a good question. I, I definitely think that I, I've heard that I'm different than 99% of entrepreneurs. I choose paths that are more, I'm not choosing the path to make the most money. And um, I, I am blessed and lucky that investors, the investors that I have are supporting me. It's not like I'm not going to make any money, right? It's, we're, but I'm not choosing the, the, the craziest path because I care so much about making this work and I know I can and the investors believe me that I can. So I'm, I'm blessed in that sense. And it is very not normal, right? It's very not normal, but I think it's the better way to go. It's the best way to go. It's the, you know, Jimmy Carter way to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Something you believe in and you know, like that yeah. will be your, you know, a legacy, even if you didn't set out for it to be that way, it'll stand the test of time. Yeah, and it's not like I'm focused on one thing. You know, again, another thing that entrepreneurs have to understand is things will pivot. Things are going to change. You're going to have to be okay with change. Change is okay. It's more just fundamentally, you know, we don't. I don't want to get bought off, bought out, and have my stuff squashed. Mm. Right. That that there's no point for that. Yes, I'll make money in my pocket, but then what was the point of even starting the company? Right. right. So it's all about making this device happen. So I kind of want to pivot a little bit um, and talk a little more about. You know, I don't think it's a secret that engineering is a pretty male-dominated uh, sphere. So what was it like navigating that, even from the beginning, like in school, all the way until now? So that's a great question. So uh, honestly, um, growing up, I you know, again, I didn't know I would be an engineer until college. At MIT, I was sort of lucky because MIT is all nerds. And undergrad and grad school, I didn't actually feel any pressure from being a woman versus a man. It was great, right? I, I, I feel lucky. I think that I know women's stories from 20 years ago, and I think they really fought for it. There was a lot of support for women. I think there still is. We still have to fight for it. I mean, in my department, there's still 10 to 20% only women. We need to fix that. Um, but in terms of pressures, in terms of all the stuff I've heard from the past, I, I have to be honest, as a um, single woman, I felt um, like I can do this. You know, I felt like I had enough support. It was as soon as I had a child that things changed. Right? As soon, and I'm hoping things are better. I'm hoping I fought fa fast enough. But as soon as I had a child, I realized, oh, my God, men and women are so different. Like, mm -hmm. men don't have to deal with anything that I have to deal with. Men don't even know what nursing is. Men don't even know, like, how much I care about my child. Men, of course, care about the children, but there's motherly things. Like, there's all sorts of things that are just different between men and women when you have a child. That's why, you know, it takes a man and a woman to have a child. And that's when I saw huge differences, and that's when I saw huge inconsistencies and huge unfair things, and, and I was disgusted, and um, I just couldn't believe that society was like that, like would treat me like that and treat women like that without knowing, but I realized they just don't know. They just don't know. I was the first woman in the entire college of engineering to have kids. They don't know what to do. So that was tough. And I think that we're working on it now. Honestly, I think we have like 12 women in our department. It's amazing. We have faculty, you know, compared to one or two. So it's it's really getting there. It's not there yet. But I do think that um, having a child was the big thing for me. I also want to talk about leadership. And what type of leader would you say you are? So, you know, somebody told me, mentor of mine, I don't want to rat him out, but a big deal, he goes, there's two kinds of people. There are managers and there are leaders, and they're different, right? Managers manage people. Leaders have vision, right? And, and that's when he said that, I'm like, I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader. I don't want to manage people. I want to have that vision. I want people to follow me. I want to, you know, you're not talking about you letting the people do what they want. 
but you are setting that direction and you are making you know, them do the right thing and go to the, the goals that you want them to go. So as I said, I aim to inspire people. I aim to get their inner motivation. And one of the things that I remember when I was in grad school, my advisor was very hard on me. And the harder he was on me, the less motivated I was. Mm. And he didn't understand that we have internal motivations that are going to beat anything that anyone tells us to do. Right. So if I tell you to do something, you'll do it. But if I inspire you to do it, you're going to do it better. How do you handle having to have difficult conversations? Oh, my God, that's so difficult. <laughs> it's, it's, I feel like that's a big part for people. You know, it's a hard it thing is, to work through. It's extremely difficult. And, and again, I don't think I do this great. I don't think I do it wonderful. I am still working on that. It is very hard. I would say that I'm still not happy with the way I handle difficult conversations. But everyone I have. You go back and reflect what you think you did right and wrong, and you learn from it so that you're better next time. Especially now, like where you are in your life and your career, it's good for people to know that we can always work on something. There's always something to be improved. Yeah, that is that is way understated. <laughs> I, I definitely am honored that you think I'm somewhere in my career because I have so much more to go. The, the more you know what you don't know, the more you realize that you have a long, long, long way to go. A, a lot of times I remember my uncle telling me, um, you know, he doesn't feel like he's been any different than when he was 21. Like, nothing's changed in him. When, and, I, and I agree. Like, when I turned 21 versus now, I'm the same person, for sure. Nothing's changed except experience, right? And the more experiences you have, the better you are able to deal with things that you're talking about. Let's talk about stress and how I know, like, everyone has stress in our lives. We all do, and we all wear different hats, and sometimes that adds to the pile of stress. So how do you navigate stress in your life and the different roles that you play? Oh, my God. She's asking hard. I know. Sorry. (laughs) But I want to know. (laughs) Yeah, they're awesome. So, again, I feel guilty saying this, but I got super lucky for two reasons. One is I have the most amazing husband ever who gets beaten up every month um, by me screaming and crying and not being able to handle my stress. And he's just amazing. So one lucky thing. The second lucky thing is I have my sax playing. Yes. So I play every Sunday, 3 to 6 p.m. at the Droughtsman. Not every Sunday. The first Sunday of every month. At the Droughtsman, 3 to 6 p.m., please come see me play. Oh, my gosh. Looking back, is there any um, business decision that you made or life path decision that you made that you look back and you're like, uh, I wish I would have done this differently? I don't think anyone is going to think that as much as I wonder what that life path would be. There's not anything I regret. There's definitely different paths I could have gone down. Are they better or worse? I don't think there's anything better or worse. I mean, I could have won the lottery, yeah, but that's, that's you know, you don't consider all that. You consider the paths you could have gone in. And honestly, as long as you're following your passion, whatever decision you make, you're going to get there. Maybe you can tell me. I love advice stuff. So we'll start with the bad first. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? <laughs> you're a woman. You don't know how to manage. Oh, see. Yeah. Don't don't even bother. I know. We all have one moment where we're like, I can't believe someone said that to yeah, me. Yeah. So um, on the flip of that, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? I feel like I've told you a lot of these <laughs> things. Right? Like the whole, yeah, um, you did. Um, leader versus manager. Yeah. Or, you know, I, yeah. The, the big, the best, the most you know, poignant advice I've gotten is you define your own success. That's huge. Like everyone can be happy if you realize that you are the only person in Santa Barbara doing a podcast at one thirty with you know with me right ever yeah right? you're awesome for that oh thanks <laughs> no you're awesome for being here <laughs> lastly and I think most importantly what does female empowerment mean to you 
the first thing that comes to my mind, because obviously I haven't thought of this, is I feel like we get um, talked down by many men, right? Like when I talk to men in engineering, I feel like sometimes it's like, oh, poo-poo, you know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, oh, yeah, thank you for your advice. We'll, we'll think about it. Or it's just that innate racism, uh, sexism, which they don't, they don't want to be sexist. Like, I get it from the best. Like, I get it from, um, from men who are so supportive of women, so supportive of women. Like, they will do anything for women to go out and, you know, like, you see that. And then I walk in with a girlfriend of mine and they'll be like, oh, who's the luckiest guy in the room? And I'm like, that is sexist. You know, like, how can you do that after being so supportive? I mean, they're just little tiny things that you see in people where you're like, oh, you're sexist, you don't mean to be. I know consciously you don't mean to be, but you're doing it anyways. And honestly, I think it's because of the way they, they were brought up or the way that society was. It's just the way it is, right? And, that, and so female empowerment, to me, means the power to see through that and continue doing what you're doing, knowing that that wasn't meant to be on purpose. It was just what it is, and you're still cool. Everything's great. We're who we are. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's that feeling of confidence enough to be like, I am not going to be offended by that because I don't actually think you meant it. Right? And I think a lot of women these days get offended, and this is, might be very controversial, get over-offended on things that they maybe shouldn't be because there are many, many men out there that are 100% supportive, and they do not know what they're doing. In fact, my advisor, PhD advisor, did stuff that I remember hating. I remember being, like, crying at night because he wrote stuff to me. And I noticed myself doing the same thing to my students, just noticed randomly. I didn't mean to, but it's just because I was taught that way. So similarly, all the people that were taught the ways of society, which is, you know, female domination, they don't mean to do it. They just do it. And female empowerment to me is understanding that and going through it and not caring. Mm. And so it's a little bit different than others. It's not like, you know, I hate all men. It's more right. like, no, I respect them all, and I think that they're not actually being... You know, I, I actually think we have to get, give him a little slack and say, you know, I know you care. I just don't think you realize what you did offended me, you know. Yeah, and yeah. just, like, point it out to them so they can learn for the next time. Yeah, and exactly. And, and and I bet you half of them will feel really, really bad, if not most of people. Like, a lot of times, uh, honestly, with, uh, you know, I, as an example, with a new gender, you know, I sometimes mess up and I don't mean to, right? Mm -hmm. And then they get offended and I feel very, very guilty and I'm not, you know, again, sexist. It's just more, I need to learn. Like, right. we're trying to help, so let's let's try to help everybody be, you know, be equal. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Seriously, it was so special to talk to you. I, I can't wait for people to hear this. I know you did your plug earlier about your band, but you want to yeah. do it again at the One end. One more How, time, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 3 to 6 p.m., first Sunday of every month, Droughtsman Aleworks, the band's called Previously Committed. Come check us out. If you mention the podcast, you'll get extra props. Maybe I'll even buy a drink. Should yeah. I offer to buy a drink? I'll buy a drink. <laughs> there, that's even better. There I'll you go. You should buy you a drink. <laughs> um, and it's on Facebook, right? They can find your it's band. It's on Facebook, previously committed. Yeah. Is there any other um, thing you social thing you want to plug, like websites or anything like that? That's it. Okay, that's perfect. It. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. This was Charting Her Course, a Pacific Coast Business Times podcast. The Pacific Coast Business Times is the weekly business journal for the Central Coast with digital and print editions as well as can't-miss events. For more on the Business Times and to subscribe, please visit our website at packbiztimes.com. A huge thank you again to our sponsor, Bank of America. 
We're so appreciative of their support. Bank of America is committed to responsible growth for the clients and communities it serves by listening as they answer the question, what would you like the power to do? If you enjoyed this podcast, and I sure hope you did, please share with your colleagues, family, friends, and anyone else who might listen. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you stream podcasts. Please also subscribe, rate, and review. For more info on this podcast, please visit packbiztimes.com under Charting Her Course. We are also on Instagram at Charting Her Course. Give us a follow. We'd love to hear suggestions on future guests as well. This podcast is developed and produced by Linda LeBrock and me, Veronica Kuzma. Associate producer, editor, and provider of emotional support, all done by Viana Mabonic. Our gorgeous artwork was done by Corey Iniguez of Dandelion Designs. Check out her website at dandeliondesigns.com. Our very cool theme music was created by Nicholas LeBrock. Thank you, Nicholas. And a special thanks to Impact Hub in downtown Santa Barbara, where this podcast is recorded. Lastly, we're all out charting our own courses in business and in life. So while we're out there, let's wave and say hi to each other. We're in this together.